The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. One of my, my favorite things about scripture, about, about the word of God, is that it, it puts human nature on full display. Uh, it's in fact one of the reasons that I believe that we can have complete confidence in the word of God is because it doesn't present perfect people living perfectly, but it in fact presents simply people and a perfect God. It chooses not to hide humanity. Uh, it chooses not to present a better, better version of of who we are and of what we experience on a daily basis. We see fear within Scripture. In fact, one of the most common things that you hear, one of the biggest commands that we hear within Scripture is simply, do not be afraid. Fear is evident. We see love. You see the love of Christ on full display through the pages of Scripture. You see the love of man and of woman on display. We see the brotherly love of Christian fellowship on display. We also see the love of self on display. We see anger within our Bible. We see jealousy. We see shame. We see laughter. We see joy. The Bible displays all sides of humanity. It's one of the reasons that my favorite character of the Bible is my favorite, and that's Peter. Many people love Peter. I'm one of the people that loves Peter. And one of the reasons I love Peter is because of who Peter is, because of what we get to see about Peter. I love that Peter is a ready-shoot-aim type of guy. It's not who I am, but I love that we get to see Peter in this moment. We're, We're able to see how he reacts, both in the positive as well as the negative. We love to see him jump out of that boat. But we also love that he sinks, we, we love to see his profession of Jesus as the Christ, but we also love that there's a denial that comes a little bit later. We're able to place ourselves in the shoes that really seem to fit us well. He's flawed, and that helps us because we know that we as well are flawed. It presents us with people that we can relate to. The Bible has some ordinary people within it and an extraordinary God. Within the church, there are some aspects of human nature that we uh, tend to elevate, and there are some other aspects within human nature that we, um, we, we oftentimes ignore. We don't speak of them. We love to talk about joy. We, we love to talk about love. This morning, we're gonna look at a topic that oftentimes, though, seems to be overlooked within the church. This might be uncomfortable for you, considering your, your upbringing. If your upbringing was like mine, it might be extremely comfortable as you walk through this. This morning, we're going to look at doubt. We're going to look specifically at Christian doubt. Is it sinful for a Christian to doubt? Is doubt acceptable? Are we content with doubt? Just me saying that Christians doubt might seem taboo or out of place to to speak about from the pulpit table this morning. Hold on with me. Doubt is something that we all experience. We have all walked through seasons of doubt. And my goal this morning is to clear the air. My goal this morning is to talk about doubt, to look at it through the gospel of Luke, to look at it as we look at scripture letting scripture read us as we look towards doubt. This morning we're gonna be in the book of Luke, chapter seven. We've been in the book of Luke for a few weeks now. Uh, If you've been with us, then um, you you might know where we're at. I'm gonna begin Luke, chapter seven, and I'm gonna begin reading in verse 18. If you would just follow along with me. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, 
And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So we begin kind of in the middle of some things that have been happening. Uh, Christ has been performing miracles. Uh, two weeks ago, we got to walk through the, the beginning of chapter 7, the centurion's servant. In, in this setting here, uh, we have an individual, um, the centurion, who is asking Christ to heal an individual. And Christ does it through his word. We looked last week at the widow's son. We walked through four different viewpoints that we saw within the text. Uh, but we looked at Christ raising the widow's son from the dead. Christ is raising people from the dead. Don't miss that. He's not doing, if you will, the easy miracles. I don't know what you would define as an easy miracle, but possibly it may be taking blind and, and giving them sight or a paralytic and helping them to walk. He goes to like the most difficult of miracles. I think every miracle I would guess would be difficult, but he goes to the most difficult, the, the outest, outermost of the difficulty and takes the dead and gives them life. This has a profound impact. The word is spreading. If we look at verse 17, and this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea, Judea and all the surrounding country. This word is getting out. This Jesus guy just took a dead person and made them alive. It shouldn't be a surprise here that the word is spreading. This is not commonplace. Imagine today if this event occurred. If you see a dead person raised from the dead and given life, I doubt you would keep quiet. I would ask that you would come and find me because this is something I would love to see. Just so you know, I'm gonna have some serious doubts. However, I want to, I'm from the show me state, I'm from Missouri, show me. I wanna see for myself. I want to observe, I want to touch, I want to be in this, not just hear word of mouth of what's occurring. So we enter into our text of verse 18 and the, the miracles of Christ have now reached John. John has not been in their midst. Uh, we don't see it within our text here of Luke, but if we look at the parallel text of this in Matthew chapter 11, Matthew gives us one little hint that Luke leaves out, and that's the location of John. Why is John not here? Well, John's in prison. John is in prison. So in Matthew 11, it clues us in on that little tiny fact, which helps us then to understand here, Luke chapter 7. Uh, it lets us know that John's in prison in Matthew 11, and if you want to know why, you can turn a couple chapters to the right. In Matthew 14, we get a glimpse of why John is actually in prison. The, the short version John's message has been the same. Repent, repent, repent. It's not a really popular message. However, he, he does something that gets him thrown in prison. He, he goes to the leader at the time, Herod, uh, which Herod is a, an interesting guy, and Herod has done something which has caused John to say, hey, you need to repent of that. The thing that he actually does is he is married, yet he finds his sister-in-law a little bit more attractive. And so what he does is he divorces his wife and she divorces her husband, and then they come together. John says, hey, that's not okay, you should repent. Herod, as the ruler, says, no, that is okay, you should go to prison. So John here in Luke chapter seven is in prison for this. While in prison, he's apparently still hearing of Christ. He's hearing of what's actually happening here. He calls two of his friends over. Guys, come here. I need you to do something for me. I can't go, but I want to know, is this the Christ? Is this the one that I have been waiting for? Is this the one that I have spent my whole life preparing for? Is this him? Just pause with me for a second here. This text caught me off guard. It absolutely did. I've known I'm gonna be preaching on this text for almost a year now, and I just looked at it probably last month, and I read it, and I was caught off guard. This is John the Baptist. In my view of who John the Baptist is, it wasn't this guy. 
It's the crazy guy. It's the crazy zealot. The guy who is completely in love with Christ. The guy who devotes his entire life preparing the way for Jesus. In my mind, these guys are brothers. That they are together in everything that they do. John's life is for Christ and Christ ends up giving his life for John. This is the guy, after all, who baptized Christ. The same John. This text, though, presents a different picture of John. It presents a picture that at first reading I felt uncomfortable with. This isn't who I envisioned John the Baptist to be. This is John the Doubter. This isn't the man that I had built up in my mind of who John the Baptist is. Where's the rugged outdoorsman that I imagined John to be? Where's the prisoner writing to us about perseverance, about continuing in our faith? Where's the guy who devoted his entire life to preparing the way for Christ? Instead of that image of John, though, we're given this one. We're given a man who seems to be struggling with Christ. Who is he? A guy who is doubting. Is this the Christ? What's changed? Where's the John of my memories compared to the John of the text? The text doesn't tell us. I have a couple theories, though, on what has changed. And the biggest one is John's circumstances. Imagine John here sitting in his cell. He is locked up. He is in prison. He was preparing the way for the one who would change everything. He's preparing for the one who would be the king of kings and the lord of lords. Yet, John's here in prison Facing his own death, where's the ruler that's going to overthrow? Is this the one that is to come? John's also probably not just doubting Christ in this moment, but also doubting his purpose. Doubting what he has devoted his life for. His purpose was to prepare the way. That is why John was created, was to prepare the way. Has he prepared the way for the wrong guy? Has he gone too soon? Has, has he wasted his whole life on this purpose and on this mission? This is what John is wrestling with while he's here in prison. This is the doubting that we see on full display of John. Let's continue to look through scripture here and see what Christ's response is to John. Then we're going to circle back. I'll let you know exactly where we're going. We're going to look at Christ's response to John, and then we're going to talk about our own doubts. So John's messengers here, he sends two of them out, and they now have reached Christ. And they ask him word for word exactly what John has asked them to ask. Well done, messengers. They did exactly what he has asked. They ask if he is really the one that the prophets of old have talked about. Are you the Christ? Is he the one who's going to make everything right? Is he the one to free John from his bondage? Notice Christ's response after the question. He doesn't immediately respond to the messengers. He doesn't. Instead, Christ gives them a, hold on a minute. Actually, hold on an hour. Watch. Just watch what happens here. For the next hour, he goes on a miracle spree here. Read verse 21 with me. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. He's healing people of diseases, of plagues. He's casting out evil spirits. He's taking the blind and giving them sight. He's making our charismatic brothers of today's look like they aren't even trying. He's done in a, how, a whole hour of taking people and producing miracles through them. Can you imagine what the scene is like? The chaos that would be around here. After the widow's son was raised from death, the crowd was fearful and they began to glorify God. That was one single miracle. I wonder what they're doing in this hour. I wonder what the crowd is like. I imagine it is a massive tizzy of things. 
there's probably lots of chatter happening. There's probably lots of confusion. I would guarantee you there is fear, and I would guarantee you there is a glorification of God within this moment. After Christ does his miracle hour, he responds now to the messengers. His response to them is simply, go back. Go back to John. Go back to John. Tell him what you've just seen. What has just taken place, take that up. Go give John the quick and easy summary of what you've just experienced. That's it. That's the message. John wanted to know whether Jesus who what Jesus was who they thought that he was, and Jesus decides to show him his power and his authority as proof of who he is. We don't get any more details about John's response, both here in Luke as well as in the parallel of Matthew. We don't see the response of John. We, we don't know whether this was proof enough to quench the doubts of John. I would like to think that it is based upon Christ's reaction to the death of John at the end of 14, but ultimately we don't know. There's been a theme that's running through the, the seventh chapter of the book of Luke, and that's a theme of authority, of Christ being sovereign and in control of all things. Christ in this chapter is displaying his complete and total authority. There's nothing that is outside of his power. He's taken everything from the dead to the blind and showed that he is in control of it all. This is the sovereignty of God on full display. Not only is Christ greater than every illness and every disease, but he's even greater in this moment than John's own doubts. Come on now, John. If God is in control of absolutely everything, don't you also think that he's in control of your doubts, that his authority would be enough for John to never have to even ask, are you the Christ? Using this text here as our backdrop, let us now look at doubt within the Christian life, doubt within us. This text here gives us a tremendous glimpse into doubt. It shows us the doubter, and it also shows us how Christ responds to John's doubts. What should our response be? How should we respond to a doubter? And what should our response be when we doubt? These are the two questions that are gonna give us our, our framework this morning as we look at doubt. Let's first begin by looking at others because that's always easier and that's what we prefer to do. Don't make this about me. We're gonna make this about Doubting McDowderton that's sitting right next to me. That's a whole lot easier to look at them, so let's begin there. What should the Christian's response be to a doubter? First, our authority lies with God through his word. We must first begin there. There are many non-Christian ways uh, to handle and face doubt. Doubt is not a Christian thing. Doubt is a human thing. We all, Christian and non-Christian, experience doubt. However, let's make sure our solution is a Christian solution through a Christian worldview guided through the spirit, through the word of God. There are many scriptures within the Bible that speak about doubt. Uh, if you have any kind of concordance and you look up the word doubt, you'll find many scriptures including the word doubt. Unfortunately, I believe that the number of texts that speak to doubt doesn't quite correspond to the number of sermons that I've ever heard about doubt. Let me quickly just pull out the two most common scriptures that I have seen within my own life experiencing and concerning doubt. The first one, Hebrews chapter 11, verse six. Let me read it to you. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The other one that I have seen used, James 1, verses five through six. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, 
and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Doubt and faith are tied together. There isn't a denying that. They seem to be uh, on the same plane, but different. I do not believe that doubt means a lack of faith or unbelief. These two verses that I just walked through have been uh, mishandled and abused. Some would say that without faith or without doubt, it's impossible to please God. And James here takes it a step, a step further and says that uh, we shouldn't expect to receive anything from God if we doubt. This is personal for me because these interpretations such as these have been extremely harmful within the body of the church. I've struggled with many doubts throughout my Christian walk, throughout my life as a believer. Pro probably the, the greatest doubt that I have ever experienced within my life as a Christian is doubting of my own salvation. I had the opportunity to grow up within the church. Uh, both of my parents grew up in non-Christian military families. Uh, they were both army brats who uh, had the joy of experiencing the world. They, they got to see lots of foreign places, um, and it, it took them all around the world, which was tremendous for them. But they grew up in non-Christian homes. Uh, through a friendship over fishing, uh, it, it caused my dad to step foot into a church. Both of my parents then began to go to church, uh, and, and both of them sat underneath the gospel. And through the power of the Spirit, both of them became Christians about two years before I was born. This gave me the incredible opportunity of always being in the church. I've had the opportunity, thank God, that from the day I was born to be able to be a part of the people of God to sit underneath gospel teaching. At the young age of five, Christ evidenced himself to me through, of all things, a vacation Bible school. It was through the teaching of some incredible saints in ministry, through a vacation Bible school, that Christ gripped my heart at the age of five. I remember it really well. Um, and it's one of those things like you, you usually can't remember things really far back unless there's like a significant event. And I hate to say it, but I don't remember the significant event being Christ. Here's the significant event that I remember, which is tied to the significant event of Christ. In the church I grew up, it was an old country church. And we had pews, which most churches today don't even have pews. But our pews were special because they were really old. And these really old pews were bright orange. And whenever I say bright orange, imagine the brightest orange, and that's probably close. And sitting there as a child at the end of vacation Bible school, our pastor did a typical presentation of the gospel and invited everybody to respond in prayer. It was one of those times where he led the prayer and asked you to repeat afterwards. Remember, I am five. I'm sitting here bowing my head, and he says, if you would like to join me in this prayer, just pray with me. So I began praying out loud. My dad, not knowing what's happening, begins to elbow me. Welcome to church where we have elementary in here, okay? It's fine. If your students are loud, it's okay. It's perfectly fine. The church I grew up in, that was a big no-no. Whenever I begin speaking of all times during prayer time, you get the gentle nudge, and then you get the dad nudge. I got the dad nudge. After the prayer is over, I tell dad what I was doing. Dad feels terrible to this day. <laughs> it's okay. At that moment, I believe that Christ redeemed me. Two weeks later, I had the, the joy of being baptized in that church. This was just the beginning for me, though. It was the beginning of my walk with Christ. My journey as a Christian has been in seasons of ups and seasons of downs, and it still is. Some of the biggest downs I have gone through as a Christian have been these seasons of doubt, specifically seasons of my own salvation doubts. How? 
how is that possible? As I grow older, I continually see five-year-olds growing younger and younger. How is it that a five-year-old can understand anything? I had one. I now have a six-year-old who still understands very little. Yet, Christ somehow used himself, used the Spirit, to reach into a five-year-old's heart. How could I sin so greatly, yet be a Christian? This was my struggle. These are my struggles. How could a five-year-old understand the gospel? How? God, how is that even possible mentally? There were many inner recommitment series that were ceremonies that were held within my own heart that were many times of me recommitting myself and recommitting myself and recommitting myself, and this is the point, and this is the point, and this is the point. And oftentimes it was after I had gone through a sin, which caused me then to doubt my own salvation. There have been a few times within my own life that God has shown me his goodness, though, through my own doubts. He's many times used people in my seasons of doubt and He's used them to reveal himself in a way that I couldn't comprehend alone. The first was an older woman on a mission trip that I went on. Um, She just casually began talking with her, sharing her own doubts regarding her own salvation, which occurred as a young child. It's my hope that in sharing my own doubts, my own struggles that it will be a a balm upon the soul of someone in here who is struggling with their own doubts regarding their salvation. The other person that God actually used, besides this this older saint, I would call her, was my own son, uh, Grayson. Many of you joined us a few weeks ago as we had baptisms uh, down on the the other end of our campus here. Uh, I had the opportunity to baptize my son, Grayson. It was uh, one of the days I will always remember as a dad. As it turns out, Grayson professed Christ as his savior when he was five years old. I I don't consider that a coincidence. Um, God showed me as an adult the the faith of a five-year-old through my own son. I, I would be lying if I said I didn't have hesitations whenever it occurred. I absolutely did. God, uh, showed me, though, through the eyes of a five-year-old what the gospel looks like at the age of five. I would be lying if I didn't say I had large hesitations still. In fact, the reason I had him wait to be baptized was not because of him. It was because of me. It was because of my own doubts with my own salvation and my own struggles. I chose to test Grayson, if you will, many times. Not for his sake more, but for my own. This is what my doubts look like. For many years, my my doubts about my own salvation were held internally, of me wrestling with my own doubts alone. Because of my upbringing, any doubt that you had, regardless of what it is, was immediately looked at as a sin. It was immediately looked at as directly tied to unbelief. This led me down a treacherous path of doubting my salvation, which therefore meant I was unbeliever. I I did not have true belief in Christ, which must mean, therefore, that my doubts were true, which led to my inner recommitment ceremony, which then led to doubting that inner recommitment ceremony later on. The circle continued for me growing up. I learned to simply be comfortable with my own doubting and the cyclical cycle of doubt. Christians shouldn't doubt. This was my upbringing. There was no room for doubt. There was no room for explanations. There was no room for questions to be asked unless they were good questions. You can only discuss sin if it was a past sin. 
This was the upbringing that uh, had influenced my view of Christ and my own view of my doubts. I wish I could say I, I never doubt my own salvation anymore, but that's simply not true. I still go through seasons of doubt regarding my salvation. I'm a recovering doubter, if you will. My solutions to my own doubt, though, is the same solution that Christ gives here to John. He simply says, John, look and see. Look and see. Look up at the sovereign God who is in control of all things. And look around. Look around at the handiwork amongst his people. Church, doubt is not uncommon. We are doing each other a disservice to ostracize the doubter. The church has many doubters within it. Doubt is not uncommon within our Bibles. Remember the man of Mark chapter 9, verse 24, and his wonderful statement of, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I know the truth, yet I still doubt, help me. The statement is one that we should rejoice in hearing. Let me just stop and say this. If you're currently in this room and you are doubting God, if you have not professed a salvific faith in Christ alone and you are doubting God, let me say this. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. We are so glad that you have decided to come and join us this morning. The fact that you had the courage to step into the building where a church gathers. Thank you. You are welcome here. You will always have a seat at our table, even when you doubt. If you're doubting the claims of Christ or doubting how he could love a sinner such as you, you are welcome here. I would even go say, to say so far that there's no greater place for you to be than here. Our faith is only as strong as the object in which we have faith. I have faith right now in this chair. I have faith that this chair will hold me. Okay, If it doesn't, we're all going to laugh and it's going to be a fun morning. But I have faith, though, that this chair will hold me. I believe that it is strong enough. My faith is evidence, though, in the fact that I'm sitting down on this chair. If I were to doubt this chair is strong enough to hold me up, what would I do? I'm going to look. I'm going to examine this chair. I'm going I'm to flip this chair over, and I'm going to look at all of the welds and how it's actually attached. There are screws holding it on. I'm going to look at all of the materials that make up this chair. I'm going to observe what I see about this chair. I might even ask somebody else to sit on this chair first. I'm going to have somebody else test this chair for me. Once then I'm convinced that this chair will hold me, my faith is made reality whenever I sit into this chair. I don't simply trust the chair because I desire it to hold me. I trust the chair because there are reasons to trust it. I don't trust my salvation is secure because I desire it to be secure, but because there are reasons to trust Christ as my redeemer. If you've never trusted Christ and you have doubts, can I ask that you do the same thing I just did with this chair? Observe. Observe and evaluate the people of God. See if the claims of the Bible are true. Become an investigator. See that much like the characters that we see within the scripture, we are simply flawed human beings continually being restored to look more and more like Christ. Observe that we as Christians have sat upon the chair and it is worthy to hold us. Observe that we as sinners are continually in need of grace. You are welcome here. Church, I think we do a much better job of dealing with doubt whenever it comes from a non-Christian, when it comes from someone who has not yet placed their faith in Christ. When our brothers and sisters are doubting, though, our response needs to be the same. It should be full of mercy and full of grace. How should we as the church respond to doubt. There are three things that I think that we should do as we look at and respond to doubt. Number one, thank them for their honesty. 
Confession seems to be one of the dirty words that is within the church. I would say the main reason is because of a fear of being judged. Ask one of my counselor friends what her response would be if a client comes in having their doubts about Christianity, about faith, about God, and she responded in this way. Oh man, yeah, let's talk about what you're wrestling with. This needs to be our response as the church to those who are doubting. An admission of doubt is an opportunity to walk with a brother or sister to the throne of Christ. As the church, we must become more comfortable with the process of sanctification occurring amongst our brothers and our sisters. We seem to have this idea that once someone has placed their faith in Christ and been justified, that they are immediately perfect and glorified. Let me just say, that isn't the case with me. If you hang around with me long enough, you're going to see my ugliness. My ugliness is sin. It is still there. I am trying to look more and more like Christ every single day. I am on this journey called sanctification, where I am trying to look more and more like Christ, and he is working with me to look more and more like him. We must become more comfortable with the sanctification of others. The second thing, join with them in prayer. Pray with them diligently. As they confess their own doubts to God, be their advocate in prayer continually interceding for them. Don't miss the opportunity to petition the God who is sovereign over all things, including their doubts. Prayer is an intimate thing. One of the things that I love to speak through as I do any type of marriage counseling is praying together. Praying together as a couple is an intimate thing to do. Prayer is intimate. It is through prayer, as we petition to God, that our brother and sister know that we care for them. Pray specifically that God would answer these doubts. Pray that God would use these doubts as a way for them to grow grow closer and into Christ. Pray that God would use you. Pray that God would use the church. Pray that God would use his word. Prayer shouldn't be seen as a lack of action but instead should be the very first step of action. The third thing that we do when we're facing doubts of brothers and sisters is to walk with them. Walk with them. Search the scriptures for responses to their doubts. Where and how we walk with them is one of the most important things that we can do as a fellow Christian. What did John do when he was doubting who Christ was? He went to Christ. He couldn't physically go, but he went to Christ. Our response needs to be the same with our brothers and our sisters. Walk together to Christ. Let him show you that he is worthy. Let him show you his sovereignty over all. Let him show, him, show you your sin, and let him also show you his grace and his mercy. When we have doubts that God is who he says he is, Let us be like the guy, poorly named, Doubting Thomas. Take our fingers and place them in his hands. Take our hands and place it upon his pierced side. Let us be the church where doubts are not opportunities for pushing someone out, but instead an opportunity for us to pull in and to grow together into Christ. Let us not be a church who is absent from our realities of life in, fa- in favor of wearing instead the mask of perfection. Doubt is simply an opportunity to clear things up. To express a doubt is to say, I don't yet understand. Help me in my unbelief. Some of my favorite times in life have been when brothers come to me and say things such as, I don't know how to study the Bible. I don't read the Bible. I don't understand how God can love me. These are some of my favorite times because in these moments, you have an individual who, one, understands themselves and two, understands that they do not have it all together. It fires me up. I get the opportunity now to show someone how to feed themselves. I I get the opportunity to show someone how God has revealed himself to us through his word. 
I get the opportunity to take a brother and to journey with him as we both walk together to look more like Christ. Do not assume that an expression of doubt is an expression of unbelief. Also, don't assume that doubt will simply be cured over time. Walk together in the fellowship of the word to correct any thoughts. This is how we handle the doubts of others. We thank them for their honesty. We pray with them. And we walk alongside them. Although this isn't easy, it can oftentimes be easier than whenever we doubt ourselves. Christian, your doubting is not sinful. However, your failure to acknowledge and deal with your doubt might be. Doubt and temptation are very similar in these regards. When faced with temptation, it's not sinful in itself, but the lack of action or correct action is. I would even go so far to say that doubt is a form of temptation. If we go all the way back to the garden, we see the scheme of the serpent. What does he do? He's trying to insert doubt. Did God really say? Doubt. He's getting them to doubt God, to doubt what God has revealed to them. What would things have looked like if in that moment, Adam and Eve just stopped and said, hey God, this serpent over here is causing us to question whether you really said this. Did you really say this? Can you help us? We might have forgotten. When we are faced with the temptation of doubt, how do we respond? Do we approach the throne? Or do we listen or even ignore the doubt? What should our actions be like when we doubt? When there is a doubt within us, what do we do? The first thing I would say is, number one, acknowledge our doubt. Acknowledge that there is a doubt. First, let us think about what's actually occurring when we are doubting. We have concerns, concerns about ourselves, concerns about our God, concerns about Christianity, or even concerns about the church, the bride. We often do the same thing that we see within the garden, right after sin has entered in. Genesis chapter three, they've eaten of the apple. They're now naked. They're now afraid. They realize this, and what do they do? They go hide. We often read the text in Genesis 3 and think, how foolish of them. How foolish of them to go and hide from the God who has just created everything, who has created them. How foolish can these people really be? Don't they know the character of God? Don't they know that he's sovereign over everything? Things have not changed much today. The doubts that you struggle with are not unknown to God. He knows exactly your doubts. How foolish of us to pretend that they do not exist and try to hide them. Just as we see of Adam and Eve, of hiding in the garden from God, we do the same thing with our doubts. Sin seems to be very easy to hide in the dark, yet when it's brought to the light. Acknowledge. Acknowledge that you have doubts. Acknowledge your doubts to God. Would you like to see what this looks like? Psalm chapter 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is doubt on display. There are many doubts that are even presented within Psalm chapter 13. The psalmist is acknowledging his doubts before a God who already knows them. It's so similar to the man in Mark who says he believes, yet asks for help in his unbelief. Our response should be to approach God who can fix and cure all of our doubts. We can approach him with honesty. The Psalms are very honest. If you'd like to know how to express yourself to God in an honest manner, let me give you the, the task of reading through the Psalms. 
There's some very honest pieces of individuals that we see. Psalm 13 is tame compared to some of the other ones where we see honesty of an individual asking God, where are you? On full display. So how do we acknowledge our doubts before God? We do this through confession. We, we do this through prayer. We pray to God, letting him who knows our doubts know our doubts. We express them with a desire for our doubts to be fulfilled. We express them with the confidence that the God in whom we are expressing them is the only one who can satisfy them. Have you seen the statistics on kids who are leaving the church? Depending on which stats you look at, and there are a lot out there, uh, the numbers fluctuate and change. However, the overwhelming number is a lot. There's a high percentage of individuals who um, either grow up within the church or simply are within the church kind of in that middle school to high school age range that once they go off to college will never set foot back into a church again. I think one of the predominant reasons that this occurs is because of the lack of a safe place to express doubt. The, the lack of a safe place within the body of the church to express a doubt. There should be no safer places, no safer place than the confines of a Christian relationship within the body of Christ. If there ever is a place for questions to be answered, it should be here. What will happen whenever those questions are not answered here is they will eventually be answered. I would much rather prefer that the doubts are answered with biblical truth. The second thing that we should do when we have doubts within ourselves is to express our doubts to another believer. When dealing with your own doubts, express them to God and to your brothers and your sisters. It's oftentimes within these seasons of doubts that sanctification is at work. It's oftentimes when you see faith making less of an observation of the chair and it's a time to sit down. Do not leave your doubts unanswered. Much like a wound left uncared for will fester, our doubts can do the same. Seek out God. Seek out wise counsel. Seek out scripture. If you have doubts, make them known. This is scary. This is difficult to do for the first few times. It's one of the reasons I believe in a Christian community so much. It's really difficult to express your doubts to a stranger. It's a whole lot easier to express your doubts amongst Christian community that you know there is buy-in with, that you know that the reaction will, will not be a reaction of shock or judgment, but a reaction of let's walk through this together. If you're currently in a season of doubt and you do not have anyone around you, I would ask that you grab one of the elders Grab one of us as we can walk this journey with you. The third thing that we should do in experiencing our own doubts is to lean in. One of my jobs within uh, the church, within the life here of Stone Oak, uh, is that I keep the stats. I, I keep lots of statistics. Um, if you see me on a Sunday morning, I'm usually not sitting down here. I'll usually be standing in the back until... Justin's probably like five or 10 minutes in. What I'm doing is I'm counting. I count everything, okay? Everybody in here, you just got counted, just so you know. I'm sitting up here. I didn't count you. I'm not that good. I hired somebody else, and somebody counted you, okay? Also, because we're going through the process of uh, purchasing land, looking at building, there's a big thing called ratios. So you've got to know how many cars to people that you have. So for the past four to five months, I've been walking out of the parking lot, and I've been counting your cars as well. All of our kids down in the kids' area, guess what? They're all counted. All the workers down in the workers that are down there serving our kids, they're all counted. Um, it's one of the things that I actually enjoy doing. I enjoy numbers. I know it's weird. I'm an odd guy. It's okay. I'm comfortable with it. You can be comfortable with it too. I'm different. Uh, it's, numbers are neither, neither good nor bad. They're simply numbers. That's all that they are. Uh, they, they, though they represent something that I would say that truly does matter. One of the things that uh, I often do is I run stats on attendance. Everyone might have just gotten nervous because he counts us and he runs stats on whether we're here or not. I don't know whether you're here or not. You're a number to me. You're not a name to me whenever I do count. If your kids are down there, though, I do know whether you are here or not. Church attendance, though, cannot save you, okay? Let me say that very clear. It cannot save you. It can, however, show a sign of health or unhealth. 
When people experience trials and troubles, oftentimes their first inclination is to withdraw instead of leaning in. Lean into your church. Lean into your community group. Lean into your discipleship groups that are around you. Lean in in the moment. Do not wait. Don't wait until your doubt has festered into something larger. One of the ways that we as the church get better at dealing with doubts is through expression of others' doubts. We need to learn how to best minister to your doubts. And you then get the opportunity to minister to others with similar doubts. When doubting my own salvation, it was the testimony of an older woman who had the same doubt that really helped me to understand my doubts. Are you currently doubting? For some of you, it's doubting the sovereignty of God within your life. Doubting that God is in control. Your life isn't quite what you had expected. It seems like God is possibly absent. How can I be such a great sinner, yet also a child of God? Maybe your doubts are with God himself, or doubts with Christianity. Maybe your doubts deal with your own purpose. Why, God, have you created, he, created me? What is my purpose? What is my role? Why is it God that pl- has placed you here? In every case of doubt, do not let it remain. Your doubt is an opportunity for God to display himself. This morning, there should be a black card situated someplace around you. I would love for you to write down what you're currently doubting. You can do two things with this card. You can keep this card and keep it to yourself, or, as I would suggest, you can share that card. You can share it with somebody that you are close to. Uh, If there's nobody that you would necessarily choose to share that card with, there's a box in the back that you can simply drop it into. That box is counted, so guess who gets to see it? It'll be me, and it will simply be shared amongst the elders and the elders alone. Doubt is something that occurs something that we as believers need to deal with, something that we need to talk about and to express. Let us all work together as we grow into Christ. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for the text of Luke 7. Father, I I thank you for the way that you have opened my own eyes. Father, I thank you for the way that you have shown the doubt of John the Baptist and it has spoken to my heart. Father, I thank you for the way that you have shown yourself to me. Father, I pray that your spirit would fall heavy. Lord, I pray that any doubts that are within this room, Father, they would be confessed to you. Father, that we would be a church that doubt is dealt with. Father, that we would be a church that enjoys and loves to walk alongside the doubting brother and the doubting sister. Father, as we all grow closer to you, Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the cross. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.